Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Paul Smith and in this episode I'm joined in the Penguin Studio by an author whose debut novel, Good Me, Bad Me, is set to be one of the most talked about thrillers of 2017. She's Ali Land. Ali, welcome. Hi Paul, thank you for having me. That's alright. You've brought along some objects, a wide selection, very diverse, and they've helped you shape the writing of Good Me, Bad Me. I'm looking forward to finding out exactly what you've got in store for us. <laughs> we are going to give a, a brief introduction to the book. We don't want to give away secrets. That's not what the Penguin podcast is all about. But Good Me, Bad Me is a dark and compelling read which tells the story of Millie and her attempts to rebuild her life after handing her serial killer mother into the police. So a nice light intro there. <laughs> <laughs> it's your, it's, I mean, you've got a, a background in mental health and this is your first book. And I guess with that kind of background, you could have gone in a, a number of different directions. It could have been more factual. But this is a thriller. Why, why did you want to write a thriller? I wanted it to be engaging enough for people to read on. I was trying to handle the more sensitive parts of the text in a way that would keep people reading rather than sort of people getting focused on the more dark parts of Millie's past. And I suppose I wrote it very sort of freely and I didn't actually have a plan when I wrote it. It was very much about Millie's voice and how she came to me on the page. So it, it wasn't that I sat down and thought, I'm going to write a thriller. And actually, I thought I'd written a young adult book, a completely different <laughs> book. And it wasn't until I got an agent who said, this is definitely not a young <laughs> adult book. This is a thriller with elements of crime. So it was not intentional. It, it sort of happened that way. And it was also the sort of books I like to read are thrillers. So I suppose that had a huge influence on, on how I wrote well, you do get a sense of Millie's voice throughout, and mm. I think we should listen to that voice. Uh, we should listen to an extract from the audio book of Good Me, Bad Me. And in this clip, Millie remembers the day she finally told the police about her mother. Forgive me when I tell you it was me. It was me that told. The detective. A kindly man. Belly full and round. Disbelief at first. Then, the stained dungarees I pulled from my bag. Tiny. The teddy bear on the front peppered red with blood. I could have brought more. So many to choose from. She never knew I kept them. Shifted in his chair, he did. Sat up straight. Him in his gut. His hand... I noticed a slight tremor as it reached for the telephone. Come now, he said. You need to hear this. The silent waiting for his superior to arrive. Bearable for me. Less so for him. A hundred questions beat a drum in his head. Is she telling the truth? Can't be. That many. Dead. Surely not. I told the story again, and again, same story, different faces watched, different ears listened, I told them everything, well, almost everything, the video recorder on, a gentle whirring the only noise in the room once I finished my statement. You might have to go to court. You know that, right? You're the only witness, one of the detectives said. Another asked, Do you think it's safe for us to send her home? If what she's saying is true. 
the chief inspector in charge replied, we'll have a team assembled in a matter of hours, then turned to me and said, nothing's going to happen to you. It already has, I wanted to reply. Everything moved quickly after that. It had to. I was dropped off at the school gates in an unmarked car in time for pickup, in time for her to pick me up. She would be waiting with her demands, recently more urgent than usual. Two in the last six months. Two little boys. Gone. Act normal, they said. Go home. We're coming for her. Tonight. That was an extract there from the audiobook of Good Me, Bad Me. As I said earlier, Ali, you've brought along a number of objects that influenced the book in some way, and your first object is this miniature Buddha. Can you so tell tiny. us more about it? <laughs> Size my finger Let, now. I'll just pass I, it I'm over gonna, to you. I'm going to have a little look. I'm going to have a little feel of the, the miniature Buddha. That is very lightweight, (laughs) very portable, um, which I suspect is good for you since it seems to have been some sort of talisman. Can you tell us how you got it and how it shaped the novel in in whatever way? It was given to me when I was 18 by somebody very special. I was training as a mental health nurse and was working in a homeless centre. And I'd grown up in a small Scottish village, so the sort of societal issues that I was facing were were incredibly sad, incredibly confronting. And the man who ran the centre was uh, a man named Ian, who was a Buddhist, and an incredible man, and the first person to really teach me about compassion and about to look for for the whys, why people were acting the way they were, um, how you can love someone when they're difficult to love. It sort of set me on my own journey to to be able to understand and accept the whys and look for the sort of the meaning behind the behaviour. And also, once I had made peace with that, to then help other people to try and understand difficult people and how we can look after them better. I tried for a number of years to outrun my creativity and I I wanted to be a good nurse and I wanted to do some really, really good things and and change the world, you know, as a sort of young 20-year-old. That was was the kind of the big dreams I had. And I knew for a long time that I was a writer. I knew for years, in fact, I just never wrote. Mm -hmm. The last time I wrote was when I left university after my dissertation and I wrote my novel 11 years later. Mm -hmm. So... I I started to make big moves in my life in an attempt to keep this creativity hidden. Mm-hmm. So I started moving countries, I started moving houses, and the only thing that came with me absolutely everywhere was this little Buddha. He's so the first thing that I put, you know, in my purse when I pack up the house, yeah. and the first thing I unpack when I go to a new place. And I used to contemplate with him, brushing my teeth in the, bathroom, <laughs> in the morning and in the evening. And, and he's brought me an extraordinary amount of comfort and just made me realise that it's okay to accept who you are and that it's fine to be open about your creativity and it's fine to go down the path that's quite frightening to go down because you think it's not tangible or you're not sure what it means. So, yeah, he's he's really helped me to be brave. So for 10 years you worked as a mental health nurse and were dealing with children and adolescents, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I did a degree in mental health and specialised in kids halfway through the degree. And after that, every job I had was with young people. So working in various settings, schools, hospitals, um, day units, ages from four to 18. So a really sort of mixed bag of things. I've always had a deep understanding of stories and people and listening is is a huge part of being a mental health nurse and listening not just to the words but to the way people speak without saying things so the body language the stuff that's left unsaid 
just how to look further into a person and especially working with young people that you know actually we used to encourage them to write about things and obviously I was sitting there thinking oh, I should probably do the same but anyway <laughs> you know you get busy writing your letter to your illness or you know we'd sit and do some quite creative tasks so all of that combined to set me up to have the ability to go on and, and write authentically I think. Well, it's time to hear another extract from the audio book of Good Me, Bad Me. In this extract, Millie describes the moment she met her new foster family. New name. New family. Shiny. New. Me. My foster dad, Mike's a psychologist. An expert in trauma. So is his daughter, Phoebe. Although more in the causing than the healing. Saskia, the mother. I think she's trying to make me feel at home, although I'm not sure. She's very different from you, Mummy. Skinny and vacant. Lucky, the staff at the unit told me while I waited for Mike to come. What a fantastic family the Newmonts are, and a place at Weatherbridge. Wow, wow, wow. Yes. I get it. I should feel lucky. But really I'm scared. Scared of finding out who and what I might be. Scared of them finding out too. A week ago now, Mike came to collect me, towards the end of the summer holidays. My hair brushed neat, pulled back in a band. I practised how to speak. Should I sit or stand? Every minute that went by, when the voices I heard weren't his, the nurses instead sharing a joke, I became convinced he and his family had changed their minds, come to their senses. I stood rooted to the spot, waiting to be told, sorry, you won't be going anywhere today. But then he arrived, greeted me with a smile, a firm handshake, not formal, but nice. Nice to know he wasn't afraid to connect. To run the risk of being contaminated. I remember him noticing my lack of belongings. One small suitcase. In it, a few books, some clothes and other things hidden too. Memories of you. Of us. The rest taken as evidence when our house was stripped bare. Not to worry, he said. We'll organise a shopping trip. Saskia and Phoebe are at home, he added. We'll all have dinner together. A real welcome. We met with the head of the unit. Gently, gently, he said. Take each day as it comes. I wanted to tell him. It's the nights I fear. Smiles exchanged. Handshakes. Mike signed on the line, turned to face me and said, Ready? Not really, no. But I left with him anyway. That was Millie meeting her foster father, Mike. With that in mind, let's move on to your second object that inspired the book. We have a scrapbook in front of us with lots of... So big, I can't pick it up. Interesting artwork. Um, yeah, there's lots of uh, words... Um, Invaded, confused, 
Can we talk more about this and, and more about the contents of this scrapbook? Um, obviously, I've talked about training as a mental health nurse. And I was young. I was 17 in Freshers Week, turning 18. So all of a sudden, I was being placed in environments and wards full of people, adults to start with, because I specialised with kids after my second year. And it was incredibly confronting and frightening. And I was experiencing emotions I had never before felt. And I didn't know what to do with them. I had sort of decided that I would just have to cope. And that would be, I just yeah. have to pretend everything was fine. <laughs> I did decide to put something down on the page. But it was these, like you've just described, sort of words and images and broken love hearts and, and things that, that gave me comfort and, and took all that stuff out of my head. So I would have enough psychological energy to still function in these very highly fought environments in mental health units and actually it's a huge scrapbook it's a big photo album and in it are lots of letters from young people that I've worked with lots of poems that they've written various things um, that that I've sort of added to the book and it was something that I had put to one side after leaving a mental health and and when I started to write the book I revisited it and I spent hours in creative solitude listening to, to music and looking through the scrapbook and it's very it's very hard for listeners to hear I don't know if I can give it a crinkle but it's sort of very <laughs> very sensory experience it's got lots of color and you know lots of sort of different textures and it helped me re-engage with conversations I'd had with young people and helped me find the voice for Millie mm-hmm. and in particular one conversation that formed the basis of the book I was yeah. able to really start revisiting and and not be frightened of it anymore. So, yeah, the scrapbook led me to Millie's voice in lots of ways. And how close is it to a, a conversation that you might have had? Obviously, you you know, you've got the creative license and um, I certainly hope there's not too many people out there <laughs> experiencing the same things. It's, right, it's, yeah. Did you feel like you, you needed to put some distance and uh, try not to take too much from conversations that you'd had? Absolutely. You know, you want to protect young people, but you also want to do it in a way that makes people sit up and and think about them. So the conversation, and I can talk about it in an anonymous way, but it was a a teenage girl that I'd been looking after for a number of months and she was trapped in a a cycle of self-harm. And she was able to tell me at one point that the, the reason why she loathed herself so much and wanted to harm herself was that she was convinced she would turn into her mother who had seriously harmed young children at one point in her life. So it was this kind of idea of... How does a person live with a parental legacy of evil or a genetic imprint that could lead them astray? And it really haunted me. So that was the kind of basis of the book. And the rest of it was just me delving into yeah. the darkest parts of my imagination. And like you said, making it thrilling and compelling enough for people to read on. How, how do you inhabit that world? It's first person narrative in the book. How do you inhabit that, the world of a 15 year old? Is it difficult to do you know coming in and out of the voice as it were yeah it was really difficult it was very intense I spent a lot of time crying on my own <laughs> so you know for the, for the sake of the art it was um you know inhabiting a sort of potentially psychopathic teenager is not easy you know I could see Millie and hear her like I can see you sitting in front of me so you have to also be able to disengage from the darkness if you like and, and why do you think people are so gripped you know by thrillers and by I guess there's a lot of crime mm. drama around, um, whether it's on TV, whether it's in a book. We're all fascinated by not just the, the criminal mindset, but the effect of it on the on the people around the crime itself. What what do you think it is that draws us in? Because it's quite macabre if you want to if you if you want st- to take a step back. But that's not the way we are. Yeah, of course, and I, I feel it's that kind of. It's not real, but it's so real. Like, it could happen. So it's this idea that that people want to, you know, I remember 
um, reading Science of the Lambs for the first time and just thinking this is genius because we are so close to this incredibly dark guy but almost seduced by this, mm-hmm. you know, but he's so clever. So there's a sense of you want to get close to the darkest versions of perhaps ourselves or other people and then you want to be able to close the book and leave. So it's this kind of duality of entertainment but also thrilling and domestic noir is huge at the moment. The idea of what goes on behind closed doors is is massive. People love the idea of, you know, the curtains twitching and, and looking over the fence and thinking, oh, you know, as, and, you know, we've seen some huge books in the last couple of years that have been all about behind closed doors. So now let's have another listen to what will no doubt be one of the biggest crime books of 2017. <laughs> I slept in my clothes that first night. Silk pyjamas chosen by Saskia remained unworn, touched only to move them from my bed. The material slippery on my skin. I'm able to sleep better now, if only for part of the night. I've come a long way since I left you. The staff at the unit told me I didn't speak for the first three days. I sat on the bed, back against the wall. Stared, silent. Shock, they called it. Something much worse, I wanted to say. Something that came into my room every time I allowed myself to sleep. Moved in a slither, under the door. Hissed at me, called itself mummy. Still does. When I can't sleep, it's not sheep I count. It's days until the trial. Me against you. Everybody against you. Twelve weeks on Monday. 88 days and counting. I count up. I count down. I count until I cry, and again until I stop. And I know it's wrong, but somewhere in the numbers, I begin to miss you. I'm going to have to work hard between now and then. There are things I must put right in my head. Things I must get right if I'm called upon to present in court. So much can go wrong when all eyes are looking the same way. That was an extract from the audiobook of Good Me, Bad Me. That was approaching the trial of Millie's mother. What experience do you have of court cases um, involving children? Because obviously that's a a big part of the book, the, the latter half of the book. Yeah, I think, you know, it's the joy of Google, isn't it? <laughs> what, what writers used to be much more creative, perhaps. But I think, you know, there's there's got so much influence from seeing things on TV and, and hearing about things on the press and, you know, lots of research, lots of reading. And I had looked after a number of young people who were involved in court cases. It wasn't our remit, you know, as nurses to go with them. But there was often, you know, meetings involving what would be required of the young people. And this talk for special measures, this idea that young people don't have to present in court if they're too vulnerable. So I sort of had that background. And then the rest of it was... Google, <laughs> Dr. Google. So, yeah. Well, that's it. Yeah, you, you, you thrust into the middle of it and there's lots of things that you don't necessarily think about of how the children are almost groomed to give the answers that they need to give, yeah. especially with such a traumatic background. You need to help the child to bolster the evidence that they've already given mm. in a witness statement and then you get to the trial and it's a, a whole different kettle of fish as we find out with Millie and the way that it makes her feel her nerves and that sort of thing. I think, you know, that the biggest thing that young people feel when they give evidence against perhaps someone in their family or someone that they're close to is shame and it's guilt. You know, and that's something that hopefully comes through really strongly in the book is Millie's sense of guilt that even though she wants to to be separate from her mum, she is so guilt-ridden that she's handed her into the police and that effectively this is her doing. So it's much deeper than 
the logistics of the courtroom. It's mm-hmm. a much more sort of psychological decision from Minnie's point of view. Yeah. Well, that brings us on to your next object that you've brought in. Um, this is As If by Blake Morrison, a journalist who attended and then wrote about the uh, the James Bulger killing and his killers were children and they were uh, were they tried as adults mm-hmm. in an adult court yep. could you tell us a bit more about your copy of it it's something that, that brought me you know a good amount of comfort i remember when the bulger case happened and i'm sure most of us remember you know where we were and what we were doing mm-hmm. when this when this happened i was 13 and you know i was collecting conkers at school or whatever in scotland and and there was two 10 year old boys doing something completely different and something completely tragic on a railway line in Liverpool. And I never really lost that feeling about these two boys being paraded in the press. And, you know, when I was 15, I read Lord of the Flies, I read The Wasp Factory, and I started to think more about children in extraordinary circumstances and what moves children to act in a way that shocks grown-ups. Mm-hmm. And Blake Morrison, like you said, attended the trial, and three years afterwards, he just felt traumatised that the why, you know, hadn't been confronted in court there was no chance for sort of looking at the right way to reform these boys it was more about you know let's get retributive justice let's try these 10 year olds as adults they were so small that they had to get carpenters in to to lower the stand so the boys could see over it it was you know it was this catalogue of kind of errors and I felt so sad about it and I was determined to in my own way in the way that Morrison does write about the things that trouble me and they were just children and it was me trying to process again mm-hmm. how two 10 year old boys could, could have got into that position in the first place and the grown ups around them why they weren't held, held more accountable I was looking at a similar case that happened in Norway and how that they responded over there was very differently which is why I couldn't quite understand why we responded in this kind of you know let's let's hang these boys and let's take them and and make them disappear and in Norway the boys hadn't gone to prison they had stayed at home they had been given therapy at home it was treated in a completely different way they weren't even um, taken to court so I just you know there was a there was lots of issues involved with with the Bulger case and you know hopefully some lessons learned And, and in so many ways you could say that the children who did the crime didn't know better they were you know kids who truanted most of their lives they were from abusive neglective homes themselves but the adults around them who tried them as adults did know better and they chose not to so, yeah. yeah, and the press fueled everything. It's that whole just sensationalism, and people were terrified. You know, like the the sale of like toddler reins after that went up through the roof. Yeah. So it had this huge fear factor. So now let's delve into the psyche of a damaged youth in the shape of Millie from Good Me, Bad Me. This is another audio book extract. In this clip, Millie suffers at the hands of the school bullies. Izzy moves in, phone in one hand, films us. Shoves me. Hard. A smell of strawberries on her breath. So enticing I could crawl into her mouth. Bubblegum visible through her clicky-clacky cheerleader teeth. No braces like Clondine. A mouthful of coloured metal. She rests her hand on the wall above my head. Wants me to feel small. Threatened. A scene from a movie she watched. She blows a bubble, pink and opaque. It connects with my nose, collapses over it. Giggles erupt. Izzy backs away. Clondine picks up where she left off. Give me your number and don't say you haven't got a phone. Phoebe told us Mike bought you one. Silence. Your voice in my head. That's my girl. You show them. Thankful now you should be for the lessons I taught you, Annie. Your praise 
so rare when it comes. Rips through me like a bushfire, swallowing houses and trees and other teenage girls who are less strong in its hot, hungry mouth. I meet their stares, the remnants of Izzy's gum hanging off my chin. Thrown by my defiance, they are. I see it, fleeting, the twitch around their succulent lips, eyes slightly wider. I shake my head, slow and deliberate. Izzy, the hungrier of the two, takes the bait. Give me your goddamn phone number, bitch. Her hands push me. Her face presses against mine. I welcome the contact. I am real. See me. Feel me. But know that I come from a place where this is merely a warm-up. I shake my head again. A stinging sensation sweeps across my cheek. Into my ear. Out the other side. Slapped. I hear laughter, admiration at Izzy's performance. My eyes are closed, but I imagine her taking a bow. Ever the crowd pleaser. Her voice is faint. The ringing in my ear threatens to drown it out, but the words are unmistakable. I won't ask again. And I never forget. Never. Blimey, that was that was it. That was one of my favourite passages from the book, without really? a doubt. It, it made me think as well, leading on to our next object, um, which are some sandals from Bondi Beach, um, very exotic. About the idea of needing an escape, and in the book, Millie escapes by sketching with her favourite teacher in the new school. And when you were a nurse yourself, and you, you'd gone off to Australia, you started writing the book just before that and then redrafted it in in Australia, is that right? That's great. I did the first draft here in London, in a dark basement flat through winter. Yeah. So it's very, what came out was very interesting. It was a sort of purging. And then I went to Australia and did draft two, three and four and came back and did the final draft in London. So so you were in Bondi Beach and, and escaping from your former <laughs> <Great> life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, I first went to Sydney 11 years ago as a backpacker. I had gave my job up in Edinburgh. I didn't know anyone, booked a one-way ticket you know, rather gun-ho about it. And, <laughs> and it was, you know, I'd been on holiday before to sunny places, but I'd never lived in a place that you could sit outside most of the day, most of the year, and be surrounded by these amazing elements like the ocean and the rocks. And it was just the first place that I was able to really think about who I was and who I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And I felt that I could slow myself down. And, and so when you were on the rocks, yeah. you were wearing these sandals. <laughs> well, no, they're decorative. I mean, they sort of I was going to say that, that they would be the smallest feet. I might have ended up in the ocean having <laughs> or tumbled down. But, yeah. no, it, you know, it was, it's sort of, <laughs> I've, you know, I've thought a lot about how athletes prepare their bodies, you know, and like how writers must prepare their minds. And it's just about knowing your environment. And I'm really conscious now that I'm back in London in this urban jungle, in another another basement flat, would you believe, Mm -hmm. (laughs) trying to write book two. And I'm starting to think, are my energies okay? Am I balanced? Am I sparking enough? Like, what's happening? I wrote draft four of Good Me, Bad Me in the Treehouse in Indonesia. And so it's sort of this that sense of just being able to remove yourself and disrupt your creativity and then come back and write about it and so yeah traveling and especially Sydney for me is a place of gentle spirit gentle energy you know things like that for me make me feel I can do this so so was was it difficult to leave I guess what normality behind and leave your job 
and all the, 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 I suppose, the economic comfort that that gives you in order to jump off the cliff, as it were, and yeah. end up being a full-time writer? Yeah. Was it hard? It was really hard. You know, I was sitting on those rocks, those dear rocks, again, <laughs> thinking, it's now or never. I had an amazing job in Sydney at a boarding school that I absolutely loved. The kids were great. It was girls. It was fantastic. And, yeah, I just couldn't I couldn't suppress it any longer. So I, I, it was the kind of that moment in my life, it's now or it's never, or I'm going to lose my mind type thing. So, yeah, it was a real leap of faith. I left this job in Australia, moved back to London, and did a writing course, you know, one evening a week and every Saturday for a month for six months and did nothing on the course because I was so intimidated by these big <laughs> words everyone was using and then you know it sort of started to think I, I, maybe I can do this. And how did how did you get from being this person in a basement flat writing a book how did you get the publishing deal and and go from there so if, if you know you've obviously come from a different world into this world of publishing how did you get approached for that as part of the writing course I was on there was an opportunity to read for two minutes to a room full of what were deemed as hungry agents you know the ones who are looking for the next best thing (laughs) and our work those 2,000 words were sent out you know, the week before and I had a number of immediate approaches from agents and then I read on the day and I had another wave of approaches of agents. So people were already interested and I was like, okay, great, but I haven't written the book. (laughs) So this was kind of September and then I wrote the book and and sent it out in February and it was bought as a partial, which is quite daunting because it's 55,000 words. So it was really just the voice and then I had to go and write the book, so I think... Did you get into a routine to do that? Were you very disciplined after that? Well, it was was great because I I had a a large break which was enforced upon me because I had not slept for five months writing the first draft. So I had this amazing space just to although I was very anxious throughout I want to start I need to start writing I need to keep going and it was great to have that space because when I got the manuscript back I was like I can totally see what I need to do with it because at the time I had no idea so now let's listen to a final extract of somebody reading your work this is another extract from the audiobook of good me bad me I was terrified to look at you that night to meet your eyes as if the secret shame of what I'd done was scrawled spray painted on my face. I offered to do the ironing, anything to stop my hands from shaking, and so I'd be armed if the police came early and you went for me. You looked different. Smaller. Still intimidating, but less so. But it wasn't you who'd changed. It was me. The end in sight. Or the beginning. I worried they might not come, change their minds, decide I was making it up. I tried to breathe normally, stand normally. Not that it mattered since you could flip at any given moment. One minute you'd be arranging flowers, the next you'd demand I put on a show. There aren't many everyday activities left that don't remind me of you, of how you like to do them. When bedtime came, I waited to be told where I was to sleep. Sometimes in your bed. Other times I'd be given a reprieve and sent to mine. The funny thing, or sad, was part of me wanted to sleep with you that night, knowing it would be our last, and another part of me was too scared to go upstairs on my own. Up eight. Up another four. The door on the right. Opposite mine. The playground. You said nothing as you closed your bedroom door. It was one of those nights. 
You could go days without talking to or acknowledging me, then swallow me up, my skin, my hair, in minutes, anything you could grab. I said goodbye that night, whispered it. I think I might have also said, I love you, and I did, still do, though I'm trying not to. When I went upstairs, I leant into the corridor wall outside the room opposite mine, needed to feel something solid against me, yet I soon moved. I heard them, the voices of tiny ghosts bleeding out of the wall, swooping, plummeting, a no man's land. That was a clip from Good Me, Bad Me, the audiobook read by Hannah Murray, and I believe that you've met Hannah and had an emotional response to her reading of your work. Is that correct, Ellie? <laughs> yeah, I love the fact that the fact I'm crying my way around various studios. <laughs> yeah, Hannah was was incredible. You know, it was the audio book's an incredible process. I was there when we recorded it, and she, Hannah, has this ability to be dark but also vulnerable, which is what we really wanted. We wanted someone who could handle the kind of tougher aspects of Minnie's character, but then when needed to, just to drop that voice a little bit and to really be able to nuance it. And Hannah was incredible, and I was there when she was reading for a number of hours and within about 10 minutes of hearing her read Millie it was the first time I'd ever heard anybody other than myself read Millie so it was incredibly moving and I did have a bit of a cry emotional very emotional (laughs) it's time for your final object this is actually a song rather than an object tell tell us what the song is this is a song called I'm In Here by Sia who's an Australian artist who I started listening to over in Australia and there's two versions of the song on, on the album We Are Born but it's the second acoustic version that's a lot creepier and a lot darker and a lot slower and the first time I heard it it came on by surprise you know sometimes there's a song at the end of the album you think oh it's another mm. one it was that kind of moment and as soon as I heard it I thought it was such a strong representation of how a young person or a person feels when they're trapped inside themselves, you know, and, and the lyrics like the prisoner of history, tell me there's hope for me. And in Sia's song, she addresses you, whoever you is. And the way that I've written Good Me, Bad Me is almost a devastating letter from Millie to her mother, asking her to love her, you know, shiny and new and normally. And some of the kind of the rituals I got into when writing Millie were listening to this song, you know, before I started writing once, twice, three, maybe four times, however many times it would start to take me to this voice and this idea of writing to somebody. And then, and at the end of finishing every evening, I would listen to that song again. So it was kind of how I closed the process as well. So it was very powerful to me. And if there's ever a movie made of it, it's the dream, dream big. <laughs> this is a song I'd like to be featured at some point because I just think it's kind of Millie on a page in a song, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, when I read the lyrics, I, I definitely drew that parallel between Millie in the book and the narrator of this song I'm crying out and breaking down stuck inside these walls prisoner of history I mean a prisoner of history is uh, if you apply it to the book as well the idea that Millie can't shake off the past and the way that her mother has Legacy. acted yeah. yeah and that's uh, you know I can imagine that being very strong when you write in this idea of music being something separate to write in and having also having the same kind of effect mm. on you you know that's art for you you know you go and look at a painting or you listen to a song and you get if if, it, if it's something that stirs you you get this kind of emotional response and part of you identifies with it yeah I think it's I've always loved music but I used to listen to music but now I use music mm-hmm. and that's the key difference it's you know and now I'm beginning to write my my second book and you know the dreaded second book so. well <laughs> 
we should we should ask you a question okay. then. Um, how is it going with the next book? What, where are you going? Don't you know? Don't have to tell us too much. No I pressure. I can't. I don't plot. So, so <laughs> anything I tell you today may well change. But good, good. yeah, there is there is a lot of pressure. But I'm determined just to to try and bank that pressure. A lot of the pressure comes from yourself anyway. And I have a great relationship with my editors. And I've always come from the, the opinion that I want to do it well. And mm-hmm. if that takes longer, then that's fine. I, I can't bash out another book on demand. Yeah, I'm kind of 50,000 words in, or you know, which is what Good Me, Bad Me was sold on. So I was like, almost yeah. there, guys. <laughs> but... You know, 25,000 of those words could probably be deleted. I just can't bear to do it yet. Yeah. <laughs> can't can't is, quite take the word going down is it? Is it dark? Yeah. It, another dark. <laughs> How are you staying? You, so you've, you've staying positive, though? Yeah, I think, you know, the Scandinavians <laughs> are great about They talk about this all the time, about not being scared of the dark. And mm-hmm. I think some of the, the happiest and most upbeat people I know who do talk about or write about the dark it's because they've got that release and that you know we're not frightened of it so yeah it's 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 on an island in Scotland that's about all I can take at the moment I'm determined to do something different because Millie's first person we're in London we're in a psychological setting in someone's mind I want to write in third person for my next book Mm -hmm. and I want to use the environment to mirror the emotional landscape of my characters so forests and the moon and the ocean and things like that. So, yeah, that that's all I know. Very <laughs> intriguing, very intriguing. We, we should leave it there. And it's been really nice to speak to you, Ali. Thanks for being with us on the Penguin Podcast. Thank you for having me. Narrated by Hannah Murray and Amelia Fox and written by the author of The Sisters, Claire Douglas... Local Girl Missing is a tense psychological thriller ripped straight from the headlines. Twenty years ago, 21-year-old Sophie Collier vanished one night. She left nothing behind but a trainer on the old pier and a hole in the heart of her best friend Francesca. Now a body's been found and Francesca's drawn back to the seaside town she's tried to forget. Saturday, 5th of July, 1997. Leon is Jason's cousin. I'm devastated. I still can't believe it. Maybe, subconsciously, I'm attracted to Leon because he reminds me of Jason. They have the same dark hair and blue eyes, that Irish look that I've always found so irresistible, the same intensity. There was a time when I thought about Jason every day after he died. The guilt gnawed away at me until I felt like a shell of my former self. And then I moved away, went to uni, and tried to put Jason out of my mind as though he was a once-loved toy that I was responsible for breaking, yet couldn't bring myself to throw out, so shoved to the back of my wardrobe. I knew it was there, although I tried not to think about it. But since I've been back, the incessant, relentless thoughts pop into my head when I least expect them. While I'm innocently watching neighbours or drying my hair, when my mind drifts from the book I'm reading... How terribly ironic that I kissed Leon for the first time in the same place his cousin died. I'd questioned Frankie, of course. How do you know? Are you sure you're not mistaken? Did he actually say he was Jason's cousin? And, most importantly, does he know what we've done? She was pissed off with me. Even more than she had been already. Of course he bloody well doesn't know, she hissed. Do you think I'd be stupid enough to tell him? She grabbed my arm and pulled me forcefully along the promenade away from the centre of town, all the while muttering in my ear that she'd found out from her mum that she definitely wasn't mistaken, 
that I needed to stay away from Leon if I wanted to keep our secret safe. But the thing is, I don't think I can stay away from him. Can I be with him and never reveal what we did? We were 16. Just a couple of kids. We were young. We were stupid. We loved Jason, both of us constantly vying for his attention. How could we have known what would happen? And why do I have this sense of foreboding? Like I already know my past is going to destroy my future. Because the truth is, it's our fault that he's dead. We've kept the secret all these years. Local Girl Missing is available to download now from Audible and iTunes.